Hello, everyone. My name is Reese Lindmark, and you are listening to The Reese Show. On the show, we're trying to clarify what a good future looks like. I know we're all a bit sad about late-stage capitalism, and we want to transition to something, but we don't really know what's next. So, on the show, we interview experts about what is emerging, this beautiful future vision that we can all lean into. I hope it gives you a sense of purpose and clarity about the future. If you like the show, you know, feel free to do something about it. (laughs) You can leave us a five-star review. You can tell your friends. You can name your first child Reese. Whatever makes you happy. And if you really dig it, we have an online school called Root, where we help folks understand these root-level systems to find our route forward. We have cohorts of world-class systems thinkers that run every couple of months. So if you're interested in that, check us out at root.co. That's R-O-O-T-E dot co. Thanks. Hello, listeners. Today, I'm excited to chat with Adrienne Marie Brown, an author, doula, women's rights activist, and black feminist based in Detroit, Michigan. Adrienne, thanks so much for being on the show and welcome. Thank you for having me, Reese. Yeah, excited to dive in. And I think that you're circling around a lot of topics that I'm also very curious about. And the first one I want to dive into today is Emergent Strategy, which is a book that you wrote. Could you tell us how kind of um, biomimicry and thinking like a bottom-up organism, how that has changed how you think about organizing? Yeah, absolutely. I am. You know, I... I think for a long time, I felt that revolution and total change of society was going to come because of how we thought um, that if we could just think ourselves free and if we just had enough facts that we were going to be able to liberate ourselves and others. And I I feel like watching creatures, watching nature, um, I recognize that there has to be so many factors involved. It's not just a decision that we make in our minds, but it's a set of practices, iterations, adaptations, things we do over and over and over again. And all through nature, you see that this is how things change. It's how canyons are carved out. It's how sea lines change. Um, It's how mountains form. Like everything big that changes, changes because of the pressure of small, um, small and repeated simple moves. And so that made me think, well, what do we need to be doing in movement what are the small repeated moves that we could be engaged in that might actually create a larger shift in our entire culture than, you know, trying to just convince people that they're mm-hmm. wrong if they're racist or something. Um, and it's transformed how I approach the work that I do. Um, I'm much more interested in how people are relating to each other and how people are accountable to each other, um, how people are honest with each other, what it means when we are acting from and towards love. All of that feels much more central to me in the way that I think about how I support movements um, than it did when I first started, which was like, we can think ourselves free. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I love I love that overview because it's like, yeah, I think that we all kind of start in a place like that where we can, oh, we can think ourselves free or we can just make this one big policy action or something. Yep. And in fact, this bottom up thing, and I really love what you said about how these small repeated movements, and then you start to think, okay, if we're all like these little nodes in the system, how yeah. are we relating to each other? You know, yes. and like if if we can change how we relate to each other, then that changes kind of the emergent phenomena above. So, do you think that there are ways in which we could be relating to each other better, or are currently relating to each other well? I think there's a lot of ways we're currently relating to each other very well, very beautifully, and I've actually been very moved by seeing 
the kind of communities that I love and that I am attuned to move through the pandemic. I've seen so much mutual aid. I've seen so much turning towards each other, so much having each other's back, so much um, organizing resources to move where the community most needs them to be, so much protection of each other. It's been incredible, really, really beautiful. And I think there's obviously, yes, places where we could do much better. Um, I'm becoming more and more skeptical of social media (laughs) um, and the impacts (laughs) that it has. You know, on one level, I think there's a lot of beauty that happens there. And I know for myself that I have had a lot of really incredible eye-opening, connecting, and comforting experiences in that space. But I also think that um, it started to land in a way that's like, this can confuse us into thinking it's it's can take the place of our real-life relationships and that accountability and other things that are actually quite complex and require community and face-to-face and patience and, um, you know, like a compassionate approach to each other. Uh, that those things can happen in the realm of social media. So I think one thing we can do better will be learning how we navigate those spaces and if if we can use them for good without um, giving our souls over to (laughs) places that don't care about our tenderness. And then I think we need to learn to fight fair. So I'm in a big question, a big exploration of like, what does it actually mean to fight fair? What does it mean to be in principle to struggle? What does it mean to engage in conflict as a way that empowers and changes and generates new possibilities for all of us rather than something that shuts us down or makes us disposable. Wow. That, that second one, I want to kind of dive in on that for a second, because I think it kind of gets at what you were saying earlier, which is like, okay, how can we, um, if we want to get to our, the ends, we want to get to something in the future, let's just like make it happen. Like the ends justify the means or whatever. But it sounds like you may be saying a little bit more like, you know, actually we have to like go through life in a principled processed way. Could you say a little bit more on, on that? Yeah. So there's this beautiful um, writing and thinking and concept around principled struggle that I learned from my comrade Tanya Lee and um, that she picked up from Marx. But the idea is that when we are in a struggle, we are struggling for the sake of something larger than ourselves and that we have to have integrity to that thing that is larger than ourselves. You know, for those of us in movement, there's a long-term vision we have for a radically different future. And we're, we're, we have to be accountable to that. And one of the aspects of that is that we are abolitionists. So we believe that we have a future where there's no prisons or policing. So in the here and now to engage in principle struggle means how do we fight? How do we argue? How do we have discontent and disagreement in ways that um, don't dispose of anyone, don't require us to police each other, don't require us to put each other behind ideological bars, as you were. So I really am attuned to what does it look like to engage in mediation? What does it look like to engage in community accountability processes? How do we begin to lay the groundwork, lay the foundation for a future in which we can say defund the police? And people are like, yes, that feels possible. Yeah, I I really like that. I think it's there's, you know, there's a pre-functionalness to it where it's like, okay, we want to live in this amazing future world. How can we actually be in integrity with that? And though a short-term thing might be like, okay, we do, maybe XYZ person should get put into prison or jail right now. But like, if the end result goal is full prison abolition, like how can we start building the foundations so that, um, as you said, when a future without police or without like that, that can actually be a reality because we built so much of the foundations for that to be a reality. Is that kind of, am I hearing that correctly? 
Yeah. I mean, I, you know, one of the things, one of my teachers, Miriam Kaba, um, who I quote all the time, <laughs> she has, <laughs> she has an incredible book, um, out with Shira Hassan called fumbling towards repair that really gives you like step-by-step workbook level tools of doing these processes. But, and she has a new book that's uh, coming out as well. So, She's, she's one of the great teachers around this. But one of the things she talks about is that we've been in the experiment of a carceral justice system and a punitive justice system for 250 years. It's been well-funded and it has not resulted in relieved harm, right? We, we're still um, experiencing crime, harm, rape, sexual assault, sexual abuse, child sexual abuse, you know, everything that we would think like, oh, we have this incredible system that, um, that, navigates justice for us mm-hmm. and it's well-funded and like, it, you know, it's supported by the government, everything, and it just doesn't work. So part of the, um, part of the struggle I think we have to be in is if that doesn't work and we know that doesn't work, how do we start to create the groundwork for other experiments to get space and to get time and to get funding? And we often hear people say, Oh, sorry, someone just rang the doorbell, but we often hear people say to us, you know, this is impossible. What about these people who cause such harm? And it's like, well, we've never actually been supported to fully fund and to fully try out alternatives, including things like, what would it look like if anyone who was having a mental health crisis actually had adequate support that was, right, the, not just adequate, like, oh, these are trained therapists, but trained therapists rooted in the community, trained mediators rooted in the community, people who are like, I can show up for you. I recognize you. You're not someone I want to punish. Or you're not someone outside of myself. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I think that that's a, well, I'll check out that book, Fumbling Towards Repair. And I think that, um, yeah, I'm, I'm just really excited as we continue to build out those kind of other parallel alternatives. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm excited by that. One yeah. thing that and so it, many places are doing it right now, you know, I'm yeah. very excited about the experiments that are happening across the country. Like the Twin Cities is actually in a really beautiful experiment right now of like not just saying it, but like, what does it look like to have the city? a line behind that and actually try the experiments on. And do it. Yeah, totally. So one other question I have is, you know, this emergent strategy, this like idea of biomimicry and building up from the bottom and thinking about those relationships as crucially important. How do you see that perhaps being like, you know, you could call it weaponized, you could call it remixed, you could call it applied by some of these bottom up movements, like the, you know, stop the steal, um, you know, capital insurrectionists. How do you, how do you think about that and differentiate like a mob from a movement? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I think that one of the things that has always felt like an important distinction for me with the way movements orient towards mass gatherings or towards like organizing of marches. And, you know, I was just actually in another interview talking about this with my friend, Margaret Killjoy was like, we care for each other, like fundamentally like care, taking care of each other and restructuring society towards care is right in the heart of it. And what we saw, you know, January 6th was what it looks like when people who are organized around superiority and individualism come together to try to assert their right to something. They literally trample each other. Right. They're literally not looking after each other, not caring for each other. And I've been to so many mass gatherings on the of people who are progressive and organizers and on the left. And I've never seen anything like that happen. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's it, so I think there's a, a real distinction, first of all, at the level of what is the impetus inside of the people that are coming to the table? What are they trying to do? And then I think there's something around 
And there's this beautiful quote from Loretta Ross that a group of people moving in the same direction, thinking the same thing is a cult. And a group of people moving in the same day, same direction, but thinking a lot of different things is a movement. And mm. I think cult and mob in that entity feel a little interchangeable to me. It's like, we're not going to think for ourselves. We're going to take something that has been supplied to us and we're just going to move and act on whatever that thought was that was supplied to us. And I think a movement's responsibility is to think for ourselves. And it might mean being uncomfortable. It might mean asking hard questions. Um, and it might mean we still come to the same conclusion, right? Which I think is also important. There are instances in which, you know, we're talking about calling out or canceling of someone who everything else has been tried and this person is still causing egregious harm. And there are instances where that is the only possible move left. But there's a ton of instances where that's not the only possible move. We haven't tried everything. We haven't actually tried mediation. We haven't tried a community accountability process. And where that move is not necessarily going to be successful, you know, um, mm -hmm. I think part of being in a movement is also constantly thinking strategically. Strategically, how do we actually reduce the most harm for the most people in our lifetimes? How do we actually restructure the ways that we are with each other so that we create conditions in which movements can be an invitation to everyone else towards a new future, towards a new society? Right now, I feel like movements are attacking each other so much that it makes it difficult for us to be a compelling invitation. And I think we owe ourselves more than that. And I think we owe the world that we're trying to reshape more than that. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, thank you for sharing all that. And I think that there's a bit there about, yeah, within a movement, it's like how much care is happening within the members of that movement. Um, and then there's also this piece, I love that that quote that you shared of like, okay, within a movement and instead of a cult or a mob, people are still thinking for themselves. Yes. And um, and so that's another crucial piece. And I think that maybe the most crucial one is like, you know, the like the impetus piece, like what what's the what's the goal of this thing? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. What has us moving together? And are we fundamentally moving together because we there's something we want to do together? There was something that we're moved by, that we're excited around, right? That produces a different result. And one of the things, one of the other like areas of my work and areas of my, my life is pleasure activism, right? And it's this idea that there should be a deep yes at the center of the work that we're doing. And I think you can really feel that, the distinction right now. Uh, there are people who are in the streets or doing movement work or what they call movement work, the, the radical right, you know, they're moving, they're big bodies of people, but at the heart of their, their existence is a big no, right? No, we cannot be equal with other people. No, we cannot share the, the wealth and the resources of this world with other people. No, we will not get in right relationship with the planet. Those are some massive no's that serve no one. And so at the heart of our movement work, we have to keep a yes that is invitational and that can be expansive. Because ultimately, we do need as many people on the planet as possible to get in right relationship with the planet, right? <laughs> like that's our, our best strategy for actually being able to survive, which means we need as many people as possible to wrap their heads around the long-term impact of white supremacy and how illogical it is and how they can outgrow it, right? We can see it as something in the soil that is no longer a relevant way of being. Mm -hmm. Same thing with patriarchy. Same thing, I think, with capitalism, with certain ways of nationalism, right? Um, that there are other ways of being that don't require us to be turning against each other all the time in the name of belonging. 
I think mm. about this a lot. It's like, what does it actually look like to focus on the belonging? How do we learn to belong to each other and belong to this place and this time? And I think that's, an, to me, that's an exciting question. That's an invigorating, enlivening question that has a room for a lot of people to join into the thinking and the practicing of it. Yeah, I really like, and I kind of want to dive in on that for a quick second longer of like, we have the belonging piece. I think it's amazing to focus on that because to some extent, I think what the, and I uh, obviously was not at the um, Stop the Steel protest, but what I understand to some, it's like they're gaining a sense of community and a sense of, and these are kind of folks that are quote unquote, they're they're low education, kind of poor folks that are like, oh, like we don't want this new future. Like we got to keep what we have here, like a scarcity mindset. And so if we can create, just like you're talking about making other alternatives to, um, you know, police and, and prisons and industrial complex. How can we make other ways for these folks to feel belonging in community that they might not be getting? Is that the line with what you're saying? Yeah, I think you're getting close to it. You know, one of the things <laughs> I'm always careful about, one of the things I'm always careful about is we cannot discount the actual pleasure of superiority, right? So there's the belonging component. Um, and then I think there's something around, you know, having been socialized that everything you could see as far as you could see belonged to you in some way and mm. was yours. And so I think there is a belonging component, but I think it's also a belonging that makes it feel like you're meant to have power over others. And I think that that part um, is hard to let go. I think it's really, really difficult to let go of. And I also don't believe, and I did for a long time. I was like, okay, like I've got to jump in there and help white people understand this stuff. And now I feel less and less that that is the case. I feel like there's so many resources now available for white people, (laughs) for for men, for straight people, for able-bodied people, like everything that people need to unlearn the patterns of oppression is out there. And so one of the things I think of now is that the work of people who are oppressed is actually to reclaim our own sense of our power, our right to exist, our pleasure, right? To reclaim our own relationships outside of a relationship to oppression. And I think that's going to be a final frontier or next level that's actually very difficult for white people or for those who have benefited from, you know, oppressive practices. I think that's going to be the hardest thing to to get with, right? It's like, a lot of people are like, oh, I don't mind this change as long as I don't have to change. Mm-hmm. And now we've reached the precipice. We've gone as far as we can with that, right? We've gone as far as we can with philanthropy being like, you know, we'll fund change as long as it doesn't actually take our money <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> in the long run. Like there's all these things that now the complexity has outgrown the container. And so now we go into a period, I think of some chaos, um, some, you know, grappling for hope and hopelessness and trying to figure out what are new models of power that we can imagine with each other? What does it actually look like? How do we get in the practice of it? And as, as devastating as COVID has been, I think it's also really unveiled for people what it might look like to be an authentic community that is not defined by oppression of someone else, but is defined by a lot of different people getting their needs met mm-hmm. with and from each other. Yeah, I think that the, um, so thank you for the pushback on the, of like, oh, is it all belonging? And you're like, no, there's a sense of superiority here. And I think, I know for me personally, as a rich, white, American, straight man, you know, like, um, I have had to wrangle with myself, like, okay, I need to actively be game to decentralize power away from myself. You know, like, that's part of the game now. Like, I can't, yeah. And so like, exactly. You got to embrace that. And it's, and, and once you do, then it's like, oh, sweet. And you're, it's not like, yeah. So, so, but I think yeah. that paying attention to that's important. 
as you said. Mm-hmm. Um, one, one in our last kind of uh, four minutes here, I want to ask, mm-hmm. I want to transition to one other thing. Thank you for all the good convo on emergent strategy. Um, you just wrote a new book called We Will Not Cancel Us mm-hmm. on the cancel culture or what have you. Could you tell us a little bit more like the thesis of the book and how you feel about uh, modern day cancel culture? Yeah. I mean, I will say that I wrote the book really with a specific audience in mind, which was people who um, claim to be abolitionist and but then are in the public sphere, you know, calling for the cancellation of people or calling people out in certain ways. And um, I was really wanting to ask the question of, you know, are we just going to cancel everyone um, and call everyone out until, you know, no one um, is left? <laughs> and I asked the question um, initially as an essay on my blog, and it got a huge response. A lot of people saying that they were sharing this question with me, right? Like, mm-hmm. how do we talk about accountability and how do we get in right relationship with each other when we are causing each other harm? And a lot of people are causing that harm or caught up in these harmful patterns of behavior. But then there was also really good pushback from people that was like, we need to be a lot more precise um, about how we talk about these things. And so that led into the book project. And the book project attempts to do a number of things. It really attempts to ask, how do we be abolitionists with each other um, in this period of history when defund the police and other big questions are on the table, but we also have the access of social media that allows us to call for the destruction or disposable, disposal of people in our community if they do things that we don't approve of, if they do things that we feel are distant from us. So that's the big kind of premise of the book. And Mm. there's a lot of small pieces. You know, I tend to work in, think in sort of small thesis, small pieces. So there's sections of the book that I wrote years ago that were, you know, about this idea of not canceling ourselves, not canceling those that we are in community with. How do we actually practice accountability at the community level? And then there's sections on what I learned. You know, how do we do a, a better job of making the distinctions between abuse and harm and conflict and mm. learn to fight fair. You know, that that is a big thing that I'm thinking about a lot right now is like, what does generative conflict actually look like in practice? And how do we have disagreements that are just disagreements um, that don't necessarily mean anybody has to be canceled. It just means we, we have a, a serious political or emotional disagreement. Um, how do we do that in a principled, principled way? And then how do we actually turn towards each other and recognize that even when people have caused uh, egregious harm, part of our work is to figure out what solutions look like in our community, solutions that don't put people um, in front of the state as the only solution for for justice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. I think there's the uh, bottom-up solutions that you talked about and like the solution orientation, and then there's the, you know, differentiating what the different words mean, you know, abuse versus harm versus conflict. Those are that becoming more precise. That all sounds important. Is there one final question then, and then we'll wrap is what was it like for you, um, you know, as a black feminist to kind of come out and say, Hey y'all, we need to get, you know, we need to ask ourselves more about this kind of the cancel culture and what, what it means for our community. How was that um, responded to by folks? Or was that hard, you know? It was hard. It was hard for me because I feel like a lot of the people who are engaging the behavior are people who I really respect. I respect them strategically. I respect them as thinkers. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, it's people that I know who are calling me in to ask me, you know, to be a part of these cancellations and other things. And um, and it's such a huge number of people. So it really felt like one of the places where I 
was committing to go against the grain a little bit um, more than I'm used to. And one of the things I've really reflected on is like the work of facilitators and mediators, um, which is what I have been like my professional life, is often to be a neutral voice, you know, to really hold a neutral space so that community can come to you. And this was me stepping out and saying, I actually have an opinion here on this and um, everyone's not going to like it. But I think it was really good practice for me. Like I, I, I have always believed in people who stepped out and said things that were not necessarily popular in the moment that they said them. And um, I think it's important to do that sometimes, especially if you see something, you know, that, that's like, I think I can make an intervention here that may be of use to my, my community and the people I love. And it's really informed by the work. I've been facilitating for 20 plus years. And these are movement people that I really deeply love and care about. And I've seen a lot of them cause harm to each other. And um, I think they will continue to because we're, we are swimming inside of the same conditions that we are up against and fighting in the world. We're not outside of those. And as long as we can remember that, that we're not outside of them, that we're also swimming in them, that we also have to liberate ourselves from them. I think there's a, a, a number of other possibilities for how we move towards justice together. Yeah, I like that. And I think, and I just thank you for your bravery and for continuing to lead this kind of multifaceted, multi-perspective view on each of these different things. I think it's, I think it's cool. And and and, I, and thank you for what you're doing. Um, and I guess for our listeners, is there any place that they should uh, like find you on the interwebs or, or go deeper if they want to learn more? I am, um, you can always go to my website, adriamariebrown.net. Um, I blog there and I also have an archive of like all the different things I do there. Um, you can find my different podcasts there. I host three of them now. <laughs> um, and you can find, um, yeah, all kinds of stuff there. That, that's probably the best spot. Great. Yeah. I'll, I'll point in there. And just as a note for our listeners, like I was checking out Adrienne's blog and she has this amazing piece on the blog. If you say you're good, you're good. So like, yeah, it's, it's mm-hmm. blog worth checking out. Um, and so thank you for coming today, Adrienne. And thank you for listening, everybody. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye.